I'd like to begin by asking you all a question. It may sound a little odd at first. And that question is, where are you this morning? Now, we can answer that question in a few different ways, can't we, all depending on the context? We might be answering in terms of, uh, you know, just literal location. Well, I'm here at Christ the Redeemer Church. Oh, you want me to be more specific? I'm sitting right at the front row, center, said no one ever, uh, except for maybe the staff. Now, we could also answer that question from an emotional context. Where am I? I'm actually in a really dark place right now. I'm really struggling with my faith. Or I'm at a really good place in my career right now, the best I felt about my job in a long time. Now there is one more context that I'd like us to consider because I think it's the most important context of all. Where are you in relation to God? Now, the reason I say this is the most important context of all is because this very question, where are you, is actually the very first question that God asks of man in the Bible. He does so very early. Uh, It's in the third chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, which reads, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, the Lord asked Adam this question uh, immediately after he and Eve had fallen into sin. And he asked this question of Adam and Eve while they were in the midst of hiding. They seemed to devote all their energy after sin into this act of hiding, hiding from one another and hiding from God. And you know what they used to hide themselves? Creation the things of this earth, namely fig leaves and trees, all desperately trying to find cover. In fact, the very first thing that we're told mankind invented or made with all the creative ingenuity they possessed as as bearers of the image of the creator God, you know what they made? Underwear. Fig leaf underwear hoping that they could somehow cover their nakedness, which prior to sin was unproblematic, undefiled, but not so after sin. So there's one word that I think that captures the entire tragic scene of Genesis chapter 3, and that word is lost. Adam and Eve were profoundly lost, trying to save their own lives in one sense, using earthly means, you know, living in this dread or, or fear of God's judgment, but still some, for some reason, trying to secure life dislocated from the Lord. So if you read Genesis, it's, it's so obvious, though, that God alone is the source and authority over all life. So just to be clear, when God asks the question, where are you? It's not because the creator and sustainer of the universe is wondering where you are geographically, or he's having trouble finding you. No. Rather, this is a question that the Lord asked for our sake, for our benefit, 
You know, it's like uh, finding a very sick, disoriented person and asking them, do you know where you are? Now, how does all this relate to Colossians? Well, our passage today functions a bit like that arrow on the map or that dot on the map, you know, the kind that you see at the mall that tells us, you are here. You are here. Colossians 3 actually reveals some amazing good news about where we truly are if we've put our faith in Christ. And it's a place where we've moved from being lost to found, from death to life. And as we become united to Christ in his very death and resurrection, what happens is our life's focus actually truly comes into focus. And this brings us to our first point today, which is we are raised to seek Christ. Please look with me at verse 1, where the Apostle Paul reminds the Colossians that they are indeed raised with Christ and how that truth, how that truth necessarily compels them to make Christ the first and central focus of their lives. Look again with me at chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul begins here in verse 1 with this conditional statement. If then you have been raised with Christ. Again, this is that arrow on the map that's supposed to tell us where we are so that we know essentially where we've come from and where we're going. And now this isn't the first time, of course, since it's a conditional that Paul has spoken about how Jesus, his own death and resurrection, has mysteriously become our very own. So look back with me at chapter 2, verse 11, to refresh our memory a little bit about how this death and resurrection has come about. Chapter 2, verse 11. In him, that is Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So Paul tells us here that while we were dead in our sins and without any intervention from human hands, but only through faith in the powerful working of God, he took us and united us to Christ and his very own life. Meaning this, Jesus' victory over sin and death is now accessible, possessible as our very own. And because of what he has done, we are now fully forgiven and redeemed. And I love this. We are now, this very moment, sitting here at Christ the Redeemer Church, alive together with Christ. And here's a quote 
from Christopher Watkin, where he describes how uh, Christ's resurrection changes everything for us because this is the reality. The resurrection introduces something radically new into the fabric of the universe and into our understanding of the possibilities and limits of our world, transforming the Christian's way of inhabiting reality. The resurrection transforms our sense of who we are, what we are to do, and why we are to do it. So again, if we are raised with Christ, how then must we live? How must we live? The answer is in the second part of of verse 1, or the beginning of the answer, where he writes, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And this command to seek actually has a sense of, of keep on seeking, that is, be persistent in your pursuit of the things above. Because really, you've come to the point in life now where nothing else will do. Nothing else can satisfy you now. And we're also told where Christ is, right? He is above. He is above, which is another way of referring to the heavenly realm, right? Where uh, specifically, we're told he's sitting at the right hand of God. Now, the sitting at the right hand of God language is... uh, Primarily meant to convey two things, right? First, his authority, and secondly, his intercession, right? He is both our judge and our intercessor. So let's first consider how Jesus sits over all creation as the authoritative judge, the king. Now, Paul's already said this in so many different ways throughout this letter. Jesus is the sovereign ruler over all heaven and earth, and his resurrection has made that reality indisputable for all, and that will be the basis of judgment for all. Look back with me for a summary of this uh, in chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. So, not only is Jesus seated at God's right hand as judge, he's also seated on the throne. That is also now the heavenly mercy seat. Meaning Jesus is the very place of God's intercession, grace, mercy to his people. Uh, This is especially clear in the book of Hebrews. You know, we've been going through this at Men's Bible Study and really digging into that. But we're told there in so many ways, so many times, that Jesus sits at the right hand of, of God as none other than our perfect, everlasting, high priest who faithfully intercedes for his people, who, by the way, are far from perfect. And he does so without wavering, promising to never forsake us or leave us. And he's also called the very author and perfecter of our faith. That's who Jesus is. But that still leaves us with a question, and that is, what's next? How are believers to seek the things above? And this is the question that actually the false teachers among the the Colossians are very much trying to exploit. They want to give you techniques, solutions to your problems. But Paul's answer is much different than theirs. 
because he says we seek the things above in the same way that we seek pretty much anything. We set our minds on them. Look at verse 2 with me. Chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So that first crucial step in seeking Christ is to keep setting our minds where he is, above, rather than the things that are below, on earth. And this verb, uh, set your minds, uh, can also mean or be translated as be focused, be persistent, be really intentional. Or put another way, keep your eyes on the prize. Why? Because the outcome to keeping your focus centered on Christ, on the things above, is incomparable glory. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and try to convey <laughs> uh, with any, any comprehensiveness what the glory of God entails. But at minimum, it is this. It's a place where we experience life to its full. It's where we experience perfect light to its full. It's where we experience true liberty to its full. Now why? Why is Paul having to tell this to the Colossians and remind them of this? Why this fledgling little church that is uh, mostly Gentile and formed of, of former pagan believers? Well, as I've just mentioned, there are false believers or false teachers of, of seemingly multiple varieties that have tried to creep in and, and, and put their hooks into the church. And they're often teaching the opposite of what Paul is saying. Um, they may sound a bit like this. This is my paraphrase of, of their approach. Hey, Colossians, yeah, that gospel that you heard way back then was a good place to start. But if you really want to obtain to Christ and the things above, here are all the earthly things that you'll need to get busy with right here, right now. You need to set your mind on the following solutions that we have cooked up for you for the low, low price of fill in the blank. Solutions such as deeper human knowledge and wisdom or a return to high ritual observance of Jewish customs and law or severe practices of asceticism? Or how about this? After ch uh, how about chasing after mystical, so-called spiritual experiences that set you above other people? Or how about if you're feeling really weak, really um, unfit to approach God, how about you approach some angels? How about some earthly worship of angels who they definitely got heavenly access for you? Now, I'd say all such false teachings uh, still exist today in one form or another. And I think it's wise to recognize that if, if the Colossians were susceptible, so are we. Which means we must pay even closer attention to what God's word is going to tell us. Because here's what the Apostle Paul has to say to all that nonsense, and it is nonsense, all those solutions to getting from here to above. 
His response is, these are all from below. They're all earthly. They can't get you there because they're merely created things, powerless and empty, and no one will come before God boasting about such things because they're all bound to perish alongside this present evil age or they've already been made obsolete. They've served their purpose. But now Jesus has come. Jesus is here. He is risen. Now, I just want to be doubly clear. Paul is not equating earthly with our material, physical existence, as if that were the problem. Um, he in no, it, no way is pitting spirit versus uh, the earth or material existence. Um, he's not demonizing creation or matter. Uh, this is exactly what the, the pagan gurus and philosophers of his day would do. It's just not a biblical worldview. After all, how could he be pitting spirit versus matter or the body if he tells us this about the Lord Jesus in chapter 2, verse 9? Look there with me, where he reveals, for in him, that is Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Bodily, that is Christ in his physical resurrected body sits on that throne at the right hand of God as fully God. Mind blown, right? But it's in Jesus that we see the hope of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth being joined together and us dwelling with him. Now, um, furthermore, Paul is profoundly concerned, actually, about how we live in our physical bodies, especially in how we carry ourselves in our mundane, everyday, present-day relationships here in this age, in this life. Because as it turns out, that's the stuff. That's the real stuff that echoes into eternity. That's the stuff that has profound spiritual repercussions. It may be more about how you talk to your wife than how often you come to Bible study. Which leads me to ask us all again, where are you? Where are you? Are you looking beyond Christ and his gospel for access to above? Now, from what I can see about myself, the truth is, we're very prone to looking to earthly things to get us um, over to the transcendent realm, aren't we? We seek and rely upon human wisdom of all sorts, you know, religious, technical, scientific, spiritual. We, we, we default to self-atoning rituals and rules. We're drawn like moths to a flame to man-made political and moral ideologies and group identities. All things that, that the world keeps telling us, oh, once you get this right, that'll save your life. But perhaps, much more likely is that all these things are our same old attempt to make covering for ourselves with earthly things, with creation. Just hiding ourselves again with fig leaves in the trees, hoping our true ugliness will not be seen by others or by God. But good news has come. 
This no longer has to be our burden. We no longer have to work to try to hide our own nakedness and shame. Why? Why? Because as it turns out, Jesus has hidden you. That is, he has covered your life, your nakedness, through his death. And through his resurrection, he has brought you into himself, hidden you in himself, redeemed. Look again at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But before glory can come, before glory is revealed, here, here's something that once again goes against our default earthly in, inclination and intuition. Uh, because before glory, what must come before? Death. <laughs> which brings us to our second point today, which is we are raised to put to death. Look with me at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, Paul writes that if we are to rise with Christ to the things above, what that necessarily entails is that we must die to what is below, to what is earthly, and not somewhere out there, but what's earthly in us, in us. And this logic of death before glory is why our first reading today was Mark chapter 8, because there we find the inescapable logic of the gospel from the first teacher of the gospel, Jesus, who basically is telling us, hey, the cross has to come before the crown. But again, this isn't really how we want things to work, uh, Peter being an example of us, because even after, right after, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, right? Like, what a, what a beautiful, triumphant moment for Peter. Um, Jesus then tells his disciples very plainly that he must suffer, be rejected, and then be killed, and only then will he rise. And it's at this point that Peter so unsuccessfully uh, decides, I'm going to be the mouthpiece of Satan, and I'm going to uh, take Jesus aside, and I'm going to rebuke him. This is when Jesus gathers everyone within earshot, the disciples in the crowd, and he teaches them this. Listen to these words of our master from Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, coming back to Colossians, what Paul is about to show us is actually what it means to live with Jesus Christ as our Lord. What it looks like in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment interactions in this life to deny oneself, to accept his authority, which is what it means to take up his cross, right? To actually let him do that to us and let him um, um, tell us where to go and how to live. And this is also that we can follow him on his cruciform path to resurrection life. And there are five particular sinful ways that we are called to put to death, uh, which can also be translated as uh, consider ourselves dead to for the sake of Christ and his gospel. 
And as we'll see, all five of these sins are things that stand contrary to God's holy character and are therefore hostile to God himself, which means they are all things that are hostile to life itself. Now, the first vice that we're told to put to death is one that spreads carnage on every level, everywhere it goes, everywhere it appears, and that is sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia, from which the uh, English words like pornography are derived. And the testimony of the earliest Christians was that this was a catch-all term that described and, and, and forbid any sensual, sexual activity outside of the covenantal marriage bed between one man and one woman. And this is a teaching that has been uh, historically upheld without qualifi qualification or remorse by Christians, even when it put them in serious uh, 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 conflict or tension, putting them out of step with the sexual ideologies of their age. To quote historian Kyle Harper concerning the early church and their radical sexual ethic, he writes, nowhere did the moral expectations of the Jesus movement stand in such stark contrast to the world in which its adherents moved. Now I mention all this because uh, uh, I think some of us at times are tempted to think that some strange new trial is coming upon us. Um, we're tempted to try to find transcendence in the things below in the earth. We want to fit in with our greater culture. We want things to be easier, more comfortable. We want to be free to pursue and indulge in um, ultimately empty pleasures in an attempt to dull the real pain in our lives. But here's why the Christian sexual ethic is what it is. Because it's the only thing that reflects the gospel. Where God designed marriage to be a sacred living picture of Christ's own exclusive, all-in, permanent, enduring love and devotion to his one and only bride, the church. But we must move on to the next four vices, which moves toward the things that are often at the root of, of such outward uh, sinful practices of the body. The first one he addresses here is impurity, which refers to the moral corruption that spreads like gangrene as we indulge in sinful compromise. It's, it's, it's this thing that's like, a, you know, one drop of poison, two, drop of, two drops, three drops, and it just permeates the whole. Right? And then passion. Paul's not referring here to desires in and of themselves, strong desires. You know, it's like I, I have a passion for pickleball. Uh, but rather, this is about inordinate, enslaving desires that control us. Rather than us controlling them, you know, such as the passion for other people's approval or a certain amount of money because we, we desire a certain amount of financial security or a certain amount of pleasure because chasing pleasure is much easier than figuring out the meaning of life. Now, last but not, not least, definitely not least, is covetousness, which interestingly is singled out and emphasized as being idolatry 
So why is covetousness such a big deal and uh, equated with idolatry? You know, the worship of false gods? Because covetousness is at the heart to desire. It's the desire for something that is not yours. And it may even be good things that you desire, but they don't belong to you. It could be a person. It could be a certain position of status in life. It could be any number of possessions. What was it that Adam and Eve coveted in the garden? They coveted God's position and all that that entails, right? All his rightful possessions. When you covet someone's position, you're also coveting their possessions. And in so doing, they became idolaters, that is, exalters or worshipers of false gods, namely themselves. This is also why in, in, in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about covetousness as a principal sin. It's a sin that feeds so many others. I invite you to study that later on your own. Now, what's God going to do about all these vile practices uh, that each in their own way unleash hell on earth and wreak untold havoc? upon his creation. Here's some good news. I think this is something everyone's looking for, right? God is going to bring his perfect holy wrath upon it all, which will bring all this evil and carnage to an end. Look at this simple promise in verse 6. Verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Because remember, Jesus sits at the right hand of God as the judge of all things, and one day he will bring a final end to evil in all its forms and all its spiritual and fleshly minions that, that, that propagate it. And then we'll finally have the world that we all really want to live in, full of justice and righteousness and peace everlasting. Does that sound like a good place? But here's the predicament. If evil is going to be brought to an end, and I have evil within, how in the world do I escape being brought to an end myself? Here's the only way. You must be hidden in the one who has already been exposed and took the full brunt of God's wrath for you. You must die with Christ, and then you will be raised. Or you will not be prepared to answer Jesus when he comes in the glory of his Father and his angels, as mentioned in Mark chapter 8. You will not be hidden. Glory will not await you. That said, did you notice that the living God loves nothing more than to take idolatrous sinners, dead in their trespasses and sins, and to raise them up to everlasting life by his grace? You want proof of that? You want an example of those who experience just that? It's the Colossians themselves. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. You see, before Christ, the believers in Colossae all once lived. That is, they, this, this is where they lived. This is where they were. And all these things, all these sinful vices, but now they have been raised with Christ. 
and they can do so no longer. They live and walk and are rooted and built up in Christ. Verse 8, verse 8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Which brings us to our third and final point for today, which is we are raised to be made new. Now, you might have noticed uh, Paul using language that, that sounds like uh, he's talking about getting dressed, you know, putting off, verse 9, putting on, verse 10. And uh, maybe you can relate, but there is something just really satisfying about getting out of some old, dirty, sweaty clothes and then getting cleaned up and putting on some fresh, good-smelling, clean clothes. We experienced this just yesterday, did a lot of work in the backyard, and just dirt and sweat everywhere. Uh, so refreshing to get, get out of that. As well, I'm, I, I, I'm really not that very uh, fashion savvy, as my wife and friends would attest. But still, man, there's just something about um, putting on like a, a, a new suit now, or getting, getting some fresh new sneakers. These are things that just kind of move my soul. They, they, they're just satisfying, right? To me, that's just a shadow of the substance to come. Because what Paul is telling us here is that the time has come to put off all that worthless old man clothing, cast off the fig leaves, and put on Christ. Who is our new self? Our new clothing in righteousness. But first, we must remove some articles of, of old man clothing, right? Old self clothing, verse 8. And I'm just going to work quickly down the list, okay? The first one being anger. How can we now, in Christ, indulge or excuse sinful anger? If we have experienced the long-suffering, patient mercies of God, who we're told is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and righteousness, how can we continue to live in anger? Next, wrath and malice. How can we be wrathful and malicious toward our neighbor when the Lord Jesus drew near to us as our neighbor, always seeking what is best for us even when we were his enemies, even to the point of taking upon himself the very wrath that we deserved. And this builds up to evil works of the tongue, slander and obscene talk. How in Christ can we open our mouths to slander and talk obscenely, abusing and tearing down other people who are made in the image of God? And do you realize this is often what's at the root of our habitual swearing. When I'm raging in the car, <laughs> that only happens very rarely, I promise. But when I'm raging in the car, this is what I'm forgetting. Makes no sense in Christ that we dress our tongues with such vile, serpent-like talk, especially when we consider how God has spoken to us in these last days by his very own son, and he's spoken the very words of eternal life Words that build us up like no other and make our hearts overflow with joy, peace, and hope 
Maybe our words should sound like that. Maybe our words should reflect that. Lastly, how can we lie to one another? If the Lord Jesus has spoken to us the gospel, which Paul opened this letter by describing as the very word of truth, the very word of God's grace and truth, the very catalyst for for making everything new. No, all these things, we cannot wear them anymore. We must cast them off and put on Christ so that we can actually be joined together with him in his life. Now, finally, did you notice how all these commands put to death or put away or put off, they all have this uh, clear relational element to them? That all these exhortations have something to do with first our relationship with God and then our relationship with one another? There's a reason for this, because here's what God in Christ is doing. It brings us actually to the very first word of our final verse in, the, in our passage, verse 11. It's an interesting word, and that word is here. As if to tell us, this is where we are if we've been raised with Christ. Verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all, and in all, which means this, to be raised with Christ. It also means that we are raised alongside a new and true humanity, a people of God that are renewed and conformed and being conformed to the image of their creator. This new self will be radically different from the old self because Christ is all and in all humanity and no, no, no member of this new people None of them are bound anymore by the uh, traditional markers of our earthly identity. None of these things can ultimately define us any longer. And none of them should be looked to to commend us to God or to one another. Because once again, Christ is all and in all. Which means, I know it sounds a little strange, but it means that if any of us are in Christ, when we look at one another, We no longer see a hostile foreigner that's impossibly different from us, almost like another species. No. We don't look at someone on account of their worldly status or or past history, and we definitely aren't trying to jockey for position. Oh, I'm beneath them or I'm above them. What we see in them instead is Christ. And they can see Christ in us. And this changes everything about how we relate to one another. Remember a few months ago, we went through the letter of Philemon, which is closely related to Colossians. It involves a lot of the same people. And remember how in Philemon, a master and a slave, who in earthly terms were were profoundly estranged and divided, at odds with each other. But then from above... They're called to be reconciled to one another through Christ and the healing grace of his gospel. And they're, they're, they're being called not just to be reconciled in merely earthly terms, right? Like, okay, 
let's pay the debt, and let's get along as master and slave as before and get on with life. But no, rather, they're called in Christ to be reconciled as brothers, as fellow sons of the Father. And now as a body, we actually get to celebrate something that is a living picture of this very same reality, communion, which represents our union, our common union in Christ. Because here at Christ the Redeemer, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So as Carrie comes up to help us partake of the, the table together, let us set our minds on him so that we may keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Amen.